Welcome to the Media Navigators podcast, brought to you by the World Media Group. My name is Belinda Barker, and I'm the Chief Executive. The role of the World Media Group is to champion international trusted journalism. And in this series, we're talking to journalists about their roles. In our last podcast, we spoke to three amazing female journalists, um, Anne McElvoy, um, Spriya Sindastava and Yasmin Siran. And we talked more about why they became journalists in the first place and what was different about working for international news brands. If you haven't listened to this, do please, after you've listened to this podcast, perhaps go back and listen to the other. There was quite a lot of discussion around how social media and how we interact with social media and the impact that that's had on trust and truth has changed over recent years. Our three participants today come from each from slightly different perspectives. I'm not going to name any names or any ages, but it will be interesting to see how that interplay works out. So the conversation today is going to be led by Alex Wood. Alex is the MD of Forbes Europe. And what's interesting about Alex is that he has managed to straddle the great divide. It's very rare for anybody within journalism, within our brands, to actually move into the commercial side. So previously, Alex was the editor for Forbes Europe and is also a visiting lecturer um, at City University. Welcome today, Alex. Thank you. Great to be here. Um, we're also joined by Simon Robinson, who's the Global Managing Editor for News and Publishing at Reuters. How are you, Simon? I am great, thank you. Really good to be here. And finally, last but not least, we have Billy Perigo, who is a staff writer at Time. Welcome, Billy. Thanks, Belinda. Glad to be here. And now I'd like to hand over to Alex, who will lead this conversation. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Belinda. Let's start with truth and the reporting process. Now, when we look back at how the reporting process and the way that we produce our journalism has changed over the last 10, 15 years, as Belinda already teed up, social media has played such a key part of that from sourcing all the way over to audience feedback. Simon, I'm going to turn to you first. Uh, as someone who's had a front row seat to see all of this change we've had in our industry, can you describe how you've experienced that change um, and the good and the bad behind it? Well, Belinda mentioned that uh, she wouldn't mention any name, uh, any ages, sorry. Uh, I I've been working as a journalist for 30 years. So my career definitely started before social media. Um, I was a correspondent for many, many years. Um, in fact, for, for time, the publication that Billy now works for. And I, I worked um, in different parts of the world. And it's true that in those days, as a reporter, I could go out, uh, report my story, write it up, um, uh, send it in. And then after it was published, there was very little feedback loop. There was the, the people on the ground, the people who I may have spoken to for the story, um, uh, often never saw the story. It was not easy to access. Uh, that's completely different now. I mean, completely different. They, there is almost an instant feedback mechanism. So one of the things that I've really noticed in my career is this, and I would say this is mostly um, for the good, right? It's mostly healthy that journalists can be held to account much more 
by uh, the subjects of their stories, um, the people they're reporting on around the world, and 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 other people on Twitter um, or on other media pl- uh, social media platforms can can weigh in and make observations. Of course, where it gets much more uh, challenging is is those observations or, or attacks are often uh, pretty extreme, um, or they can be extreme, and and so then it becomes challenging. Just the mere act of reporting can in some cases unleash you know a, a lot of vitriol a lot of uh, a lot of anger and and you know we know from the last few years that it, it can get fairly toxic and thank you simon and to, to billy uh, again without uh, naming ages you are maybe at the younger end of our spectrum of at least for guests today um talk to me about your use of social media and twitter and your reporting process are there any times where you feel like it's maybe a time sink I think any journalist who tells you that they never waste any time on Twitter is probably filling your leg. Um, I uh, I find myself on it quite a lot. It's a useful reporting tool, definitely. I mean, it it's it helps you get in touch with sources. It helps you stay uh, in the loop of what's happening on the ground, and um, it really helps you respond to breaking news in a way that was just completely impossible before. Um, I think the the question of trust online goes goes far broader than Twitter, though, as well. And um, like you said, I'm I'm perhaps uh, the youngest on this panel, and um, I really struggle to remember a world without social media. I was I was very young when I registered my Facebook account, for example, um, and I remember when social media. Maybe this is just my kind of rose-tinted spectacles to my youth, but it, when it was a a positive thing, uh, more so than a negative thing, at least. Um, I remember using it at university and thinking, oh, this is what the platform was designed for by Mark Zuckerberg in his dorm room at Harvard. And it was fantastic for staying in touch with, you know, uh, a wide circle of people on a campus. But um, I graduated the year that um, Trump was elected. And it was very clear to me that the story of how these new socio-technical systems were impacting our democracy and our society um, and also on people's individual mental health was going to be one of the biggest stories of our era. And I think uh, that's definitely been shown to be be true. And I wonder, just thinking about my other hat that I wear at City University, looking at students throughout the years, and I've noticed this trend. So we used to have this great exercise at City University, your first class, we would literally chuck you out the door and say, go and find a story. And it's an incredibly good exercise, you know, to make people feel more confident, go and talk to people. But now over the last couple of years, my students will immediately turn to, to social media, Twitter in particular, and scout around for stories. And, and Simon, I just wanted to ask you from your perspective as, as a managing editor, do you feel that that maybe means that we as an industry are missing stories, the stories that maybe are in front of us and we're going straight to social media instead of traditional sourcing and reporting? Yeah, I think that can happen for sure. I think uh, one, of the, one of the skills that I've noticed in the newsroom that um, I think that we no longer do nearly as much as, as um, uh, this, this maybe dates me a bit, is, is just picking up the phone and making calls. I think a lot more reporting these days, just as an observation, I think happens um, via, uh, you know, written chat or, or email or whatever it is. And, and I think there's nothing that can beat um, either a face-to-face discussion or a, or a phone call. Um, I, I think undoubtedly we miss stories where 
if we're focused very much on that kind of the, the uh, I guess that the bubble of, of of those who are on Twitter, we can kind of get caught up in that, and it's easy. And I, I find myself, you know, I I don't um, I don't uh, misunder, um, you know, I don't underestimate the 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 uh, how easy it is to get. In the in the kind of heat of a moment of a story, to get kind of very focused on what you're seeing in front of you on on, on Twitter or on Facebook or elsewhere, but that is not clearly the entire story in many parts of the world. So we need to be very careful about um, about just focusing on what's happening online, albeit that it's that it is important. I would I would say that um, we're talking about a, a phenomenon that has risen in society at the same time as ad tech, which is basically the, the monetary engine of social media, is gutting the once uh, large uh, coffers of news organizations. And so the role that Simon did for many years at time, uh, along with many colleagues at the same news organization, is now um, almost non-existent. So um, in some ways, you can kind of attribute that to the rise of the platforms that have uh, now become the primary servers of uh, advertisement. And so I don't think it's a question of social media causing necessarily reporters to stop going out and looking for stories on the ground, but also uh, making it quite, quite difficult financially for news organizations to continue to fund that level of on-the-ground reporting. And mm. you know, if these tools didn't allow us other avenues of, of getting in touch with people, then the situation that we'd be looking at would be significantly more dire in terms of um, being able to report the news at all. Yeah, I think that's a really good observation. I think that, um, you know, it, it, I, when I'm uh, ever in a classroom at, at Reuters with younger reporters, uh, I often use the example um, of, say, a, a bomb going off in somewhere, um, let's say Kampala in Uganda 25, 30 years ago, that was a time when the the wire agencies, you know, and Reuters being one of them, where the AP, Reuters or AFP, if if um, one of them were there and then the others weren't, they probably owned that story for a day, maybe even a couple of days. Because frankly, in speaking in terms of how the world understood what had just happened, they were the primary and possibly the only source of information. That that began to break down a little bit once the with the um, uh, with the internet where local newspapers obviously could report and people around the world could access that. But um, nowadays, if a bomb goes off in Kampala, uh, there's going to be all sorts of information on, on Twitter within seconds. So in terms of the wire agency's um, ability to compete, that's really, really difficult. Our main competitor almost is now some of the social media platforms in, in, a, in a weird way. The thing that we can provide, which you don't get just in a in a kind of unfiltered um, feed of, of of photos and 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 comments and and kind of often um, inexpert um, uh, opinion, is is trust, right? What we can provide is is trust. We and and that's why for us it's it's kind of a a fundamental and existential kind of point of pride that that um, that you know we we cover the world in a, in a way that you can trust. I think this this kind of brings us really nicely to, and Billy, you've already mentioned it as well. That that maybe tension between the news publishers and the platforms as well. Billy, how else can we as news organisations reinforce the value that we give over platforms when it comes to breaking news stories? 
Yeah, I think one thing that's important to realize when you're talking about platforms is that they tend to optimize for attention, which means that they design their systems in a way that tries to amplify content that they think will keep people looking at their own platform. Um, and often that correlates with the things that news organizations write about as a matter of bread and butter. So breaking news, uh, the topics of the day, but it doesn't always correlate with that. So it's an imperfect proxy. Um, and you guys will probably remember like, you know, there's one weird trick, BuzzFeed style clickbait headlines. Um, and that's the kind of signal of how the, the kind of rules of physics of the platforms don't necessarily um, align with the, the, the long-standing priorities of news organizations to report the news. And what we've mm -hmm. seen over the last 10 years is news organizations trying with varying degrees of success to adapt the way that they tell their stories uh, to align with those incentives that the platforms present them with because platforms have become the primary distribution mechanisms for those stories which bring in readers and therefore bring in, in revenue at the end of the day. Um, but it is imperfect. I, I mentioned BuzzFeed. Um, in the Facebook files, the leak that came out last year, there was a, a story about how BuzzFeed's CEO sent a letter to Mark Zuckerberg saying, look, the stories that are doing best on our website are not the ones that are best for the world. Um, you know, it's the it's the you know the silly ones that are doing the best, and and clearly there's there's a problem there. Um, and I don't think Facebook did change their algorithm in response to that. So and I, I want to push you on that. Actually, I'm curious to ask your perspective on this as a relatively younger journalist on on our panel today. How does it make you feel when you see? Though I've had this so many times in my career you've done some incredible investigative reporting, a really meaty story and traffic wise, it just doesn't fly compared to the quick, silly April Fool's tech story, let's say. Yeah, funny story that I always tell is that uh, still my best performing story on the Time website is a story that I wrote during uh, when I was an intern during the Christmas party with a glass of champagne on my desk about a UFO sighting. Well, those are always uh, the best stories. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like, I do, I do want to emphasize that, you know, the investigative reporting often does actually get a lot of traffic if it's a good story. But the problem is it takes a lot of time to do. And if you spent all of that time writing clickbait stories, you would naturally uh, get more views for the, for the organization and more ad clicks and, you know, maybe, maybe not more revenue depending on the extent to which you see investigative reporting as as integral to this idea of building trust over the long term and um, kind of people call it tentpole journalism, I guess. Um, yeah. So it's a tricky question, but um, yeah, there's, there's definitely competing incentives at play. So it's clear I'm hearing from both of you that social media entirely indispensable to you and your teams at this stage. But Simon, on the on the Reuters perspective, you have an entire user-generated content fact-checking dis disinformation team looking at content on the internet and verifying it. Give us a bit of a sense of where that team is at and some of the learnings you've had. Yeah, I think um, the, the, the fact-checking uh, unit grew out of the UGC unit, which initially was very visuals focused and, and still actually a lot of the work they do is very visuals. Um, we, we now operate those two teams separately. Um, and the, 
the fact-checking team actually does work for some of the platforms. Um, you know, some of the bigger platforms actually kind of in some ways outsource some of their own fact-checking. So we do that. We do some for ourselves as well. I think that that, uh, that area of journalism is really undergoing a massive amount of change in the last few years. And we realize more and more that it's not just as simple as um, debunking or, or, or fact-checking various claims. I think that's important in real time in particular, particularly around things like um, elections. It was, I'm originally from Australia and it was interesting to see that the Australian Electoral Commission actually did a lot of work um, around kind of uh, shooting down disinformation during the, the recent um, election uh, in Australia for, for Parliament. Um, so we, I think, though, as I say, it's, it's not just a case of uh, in real time um, fact-checking different claims that are on social media. I think that one of the ways that we're getting more sophisticated with this is is what one of our editors calls pre-bunking, almost getting out ahead of uh, disinformation, anticipating what the disinfo- disinformation may be um, based on past experience, and and what doing what she calls pre-bunking, um, basically saying you know over the next coming weeks you may hear this this and this and and that's um that's much much more sophisticated in many ways than than just taking a claim and, and showing that it's wrong um so that's one thing that we're, we're we're moving into that area more and more and and you've also been exploring artificial intelligence as one well. and billy i just want to turn from you from your perspective as a tech writer how do you feel about the idea of being replaced by an ai uh, luckily, I don't think AI is anywhere near the capability of replacing the job that a reporter does um, in most contexts, but in, in the sense that uh, lots of people used to be employed at news organizations, basically syndicate, rewriting content that existed on other platforms or documents already and turning it into a news story. Uh, in order to like gain a small slice of the attention pie, uh, that is a, now a task that, uh, for example, tools made by Google and OpenAI can perform. Uh, and I think those companies are both uh, planning on um, releasing tools to news organizations that can carry that out. And I understand that Reuters has its own version of, of that software specifically to look at company documents, which Simon, I'm sure, can talk about. Um, I think the the main question about AI that I'm focused on is the public's misconceptions of what it can do. Um, and that very closely ties into this question of trust. Um, and especially as organizations begin using different forms of machine learning technologies, uh, what lots of the academic researchers are saying is that it's absolutely integral to be transparent and open about what the technology actually does and when it's being used so that a person knows for example when they're reading a piece of text that has been generated by a machine learning algorithm and and simon i just want to turn to you to hear a a little bit more about what reuters are doing on the ai piece yeah the main way the main way that we use it and we're not unique in this um uh, you know some of our biggest competitors uh, other organizations like bloomberg or the ap uh, the, the way we use it is mostly around um, disclosure news um, uh, on 
uh, on our business um, our content. So, you know, when a, a big company or a company around the world that we cover uh, puts out its quarterly results, often they do it online. We um, There's a way, you know, that we um, have of, of um, capturing that, capturing the change on their website and then feeding it into our system and it will be put out as... I, I won't say story because it's usually a headline, which, you know, may just encapsulate, you know, um, company X's uh, profit up, you know, 20% this past quarter. That may be the, the, the headline. That, that then feeds many of our most important clients who are financial traders. Um, uh, and, in, and in this case, um, often these days, they're not actually, it's not a human trader on the other end of the receiving the information, it may actually be a machine itself. So, uh, you know, that one of the trading companies or, or hedge funds or, or whoever um, is uses AI or algorithms on the other end to kind of ingest information and, and make trades based on that. So you end up with a situation where um, a lot of the information is kind of um, flowing through, um, you know, with a, with, a, with a big dose of help from um, automation and, and AI. Building onto the theme of trust and transparency, we've we've all during this conversation talked about various moments where I feel our audiences and the general society have maybe lost some of the trust that they've had in traditional news organisations. Billy, what do you think the role from a staff writer perspective can be in terms of rebuilding that trust and that transparency with our audiences? Uh, I think to a large extent, it's being clear about what the work of a journalist actually involves. Um, so for the avoidance of doubt, what I do is in my day-to-day is talk to people uh, in, largely in the tech world, which is what I cover, um, and try and tell stories and write stories about what the interesting things are going on and ask questions that uh, companies generally don't want to be asked. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it's much wider than that as well, I think like we were just talking about on, on Twitter, most most journalists have an account on Twitter and what that has led to in the last decade is is this kind of um, proliferation of individual reporters having their own, I hate this term, but personal brands um, and being able to direct uh, connect more directly with their audiences. Um, and for lots of reporters, that's seen as a good thing because it gives them more leverage against their employers Uh, and it helps them direct attention where they want to direct it to. Uh, Employers don't see it that way in in lots of cases, and there have been some controversies uh, inside newsrooms surrounding, uh, you know, improper use of Twitter by journalists who are, you know, in the old-fashioned school of of thought meant to be completely impartial. Um, So, you know, Twitter has been a great tool for journalists in their employment, uh, situations, but it's also, as we also mentioned, um, a great tool for finding sources and stuff. But to some extent, I think it's also maybe stripped away the mystique that reporting used to carry in the public imagination. Um, you know, I watched All the President's Men recently, and that's, I didn't know this, but where the phrase follow the money comes from. And that was for a long time one of the public's defining ideas of what journalism was and kind of meeting sources in, in dark car parks and i think if you spend any time on twitter you probably realize that most journalists spend most of their time writing witty tweets instead of uh 
doing their jobs properly. So, you know, it's Twitter is designed to like amplify controversy. And I think that's one of the things that is in the background really shaping the way that journalists think about what the stories that they should be covering are. Um, and sometimes and often, like I said before, it's a, that's an imperfect proxy of what journalists, the role of journalists traditionally should have been, which is, you know, the fourth estate in, in democracy and holding institutions to account, um, especially when doing that work is expensive and time consuming uh, and doesn't necessarily bring in as, as much money as, as other activities. Simon, blunt question. You're imagining editor. How do you feel about having a newsroom of journalists thinking about their personal brand and Twitter over your properties? How are you managing that? I think it can be really challenging. Uh, and we've seen lots of cases in recent years of, of where, uh, where that's caused problems in newsrooms. I mean, I think we need to get the balance right. I think it's fantastic for not only for the the, the reporter, if they have a strong personal brand, that that's also uh, incredibly helpful for for the organisation as well. Um, but we can't, I, I guess, I, I subscribe to the idea that ultimately organisations are, um, uh, are stronger than individuals in, in the sense that, um, you know, they'll be around for a lot longer than any individual reporter. And I think that um, certainly at Reuters, we... we um, you know, we want to be strong now and we want to, we, I want Reuters to be strong in 50 years and continuing to cover the world. So, you know, I think one of the really most simple, and this is, this may seem quite basic, but one of the most simple things that we as uh, reporters and journalists can do to answer your earlier question about how to engender trust is, is to correct mistakes in a very um, transparent and public way when when we make them, um, I think that there's always a danger that journalists can be kind of uh, come journalism can come with a certain arrogance, and I think it's really a very very good thing, both substantively and also in terms of the perception of what we do uh, to correct mistakes and explain how we got something wrong, and 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 you know how we've how we've changed that in a story, and we that's something that we do pretty much every day. I mean, we're producing thousands of stories a day, so we do make mistakes. You you know when you're when you're putting out that volume of content, you absolutely make mistakes, and um, the the best way to deal with it is to correct them. Now, we're coming up on time, um, but I wanted to mention to our listeners that today is Wednesday, the 22nd of June, and I have to deal with the giant elephant in the room when we talk about Twitter, which is Elon Musk. So I want to turn to both of our guests and ask you both, if you were to be bold and give me a prediction, um, where do you think this Twitter deal is heading? I know he's an unpredictable man, but if you're a betting man, Simon, where do you think this is going to end? I'm not sure I would take that bet. Um, I, you know, he, he, will he buy the company or not? I think it's really hard to say at this point. Clearly, he's had a number of changes uh, of of um, of intent over the last few weeks. Uh, it's a it's an intriguing and kind of engaging corporate saga. And I think, you know, it may not be so simple as to say, well, he won't buy it or he will buy it. Maybe there's another alternative. I'm not quite sure what, but. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't take that bet, I'll be honest. Billy? Yeah, I'm with Simon here, but what I would say is that um, some of the Twitter employees who I'm speaking to are operating under the assumption that it will happen. 
uh, in some form or another. From just from looking at the public reporting, it seems that he has taken issue with this uh, idea that there are too many or more bots on the platform than Twitter had previously acknowledged, uh, despite uh, giving up in the previous deal that he signed with the company his right to do any due diligence whatsoever, including uh, quantifying how many bots are on the platform. Um, so yeah, who knows? I don't know. Lots of people don't know, but um, it's clearly a huge disruption within the company. Um, and yeah, I, I did a report recently on how many people who are working on the, the safety and algorithmic issues within the company have been distracted and feel like if it does go through, uh, lots of their work might be sidelined or even uh, thrown in the bin entirely. And assuming if this deal does go through, Simon, just briefly, what does that mean for a news organisation like Reuters? I mean, I, I, I think it depends on, on what exactly he does with it. Um, it. It's possible that the enormity of owning something like Twitter will... Um, uh, you know, will 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 possibly change his approach to to um, you know the the things that he's identified as as problems. On the other hand, I'm not sure there's much evidence that um, that that's been true in his past. So, I, I mean, I you know, it sounds slightly mealy mouth, but I, it's it's really it's really hard to tell exactly what it will mean. Uh, Reuters has um, a number of commercial contracts with Twitter. We we um, publish um, various things on Twitter. Uh, we um, obviously our journalists use it as a way to highlight their stories, to distribute their their um, their great work. Uh, we use it as a reporting tool. It is an incredibly vital part of a modern reporter's kind of armory. It's it's really um, it's really important. Not the only thing, but um, uh, it will be super interesting to see what exactly he does with it. Brilliant. Well, I think unfortunately we have run out of time. I want to say a huge thank you to both of our guests, Billy and Simon, for your time. I've loved hearing all the insights. And now it is time to hand back to Belinda. Thank you so much, Alex. It's just always such an honour to sit and listen to, to uh, conversations with journalists. It, it, it makes... It brings everything so much to life. And if you enjoyed um, this podcast, do please uh, subscribe to our channel and you can always check out the website, which is um, world-media-group.com, where you'll find all sorts of other bits of pieces of thought leadership and podcasts. Um, I do hope you will join us again soon. And I would just like to thank again, um, Alex, Simon and Billy for um, sharing your time with us. Thank you so much. The World Media Group is an alliance of the world's leading international media organisations that connects brands with highly engaged, influential audiences in the context of trusted and renowned journalism. For further information, please go to our website, world-media-group.com. Thank you.